Welcome to Write Good, the only podcast that helps you write good. I'm R.S. Benedict. There's a trend in contemporary speculative fiction to soften or humanize monsters. We have nice vampires who don't kill people, sad ghosts who don't torment the living, succubi who don't fuck anyone. Some people find this charming, but here at Write Good, We like it when monsters are monstrous. Here to talk about this is returning champion, Carlo Jaeger Rodriguez. Hello, Raquel. I just want to say that I do not drink wine. (laughs) I instead drink seltzer. Oh, very nice. Very nice. We were recording this the day after Henry Kissinger's passing. Speaking of. (laughs) So I assume you drank something nice that day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had an apricot wheat ale. It was quite good. Mm, sounds yeah. good. Yeah, it was pretty good. It was good. So, anyway, on that note, let's talk a little bit about that trend. And, and this is, I shouldn't have said speculative fiction. I really should have said sci-fi and fantasy because horror generally tends to prefer monstrous monsters. But I've noticed that there's this general trend of kind of sanitized monsters in a lot of popular sci-fi and a lot of popular fantasy. So let's talk about that. Why do we th- where where is this coming from? Why do we think we're seeing so much of it? Why is it so popular? Personally, I don't have any issue with like it's fine, but but I don't prefer it, right? It brings to mind I f- I forget who who this is attributed to, but it's it's that old saying where yes, your dragon can be a metaphor but it must also be a dragon. Yeah. I think that's a great jumping off point because you could apply this to just about any one of those, like, uh, just call them the universal monster movie monsters. You have little, you know, hug box vampires. Yeah. They feed off of hugs. Isn't that great? Yeah. I mean, I know it started as a subversion of old tropes, I guess, but now it feels like that's become the main trope. So when we say, oh, a, a werewolf who's friendly, I'm not really surprised. I'm, it's not a subversion anymore. Now that's normal. Actually, mm-hmm. having a werewolf who was really, really bad and scary, I think, would be a lot more subversive or a lot more surprising in a way. So I, I will also say that one of the things, as I was thinking about this, one of the things that I, I felt sort of accelerated this particular trend was the movie... Uh, I have not seen the the show, but the movie uh, What We Do in Shadows, which yeah, very enjoyable, uh, quite funny at times, yeah. um, but but at the same time representing sort of this mundanity of having to basically it's, it's the real world, but if the real world were just a bunch of vampires living together, right? But I will say that the the original movie does have a couple of moments where it's like legitimately sort of creepy and scary, and they have like a big Count Orloff looking motherfucker that yeah. is just horrific looking. You're like, oh yes, keep him down in the basement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I like I like the show. Well, the show kind of mid. I, I like the movie, and I think that's fine. But it. That was funny. The many, many, many imitators aren't as interesting or funny mm-hmm. to me. And I think there's a sort of, at least in SFF, there's a little bit of a political thing to it. I, the thinking is that monsters represent the other. 
right? Mm -hmm. Monsters represent the horrifying other. So portraying monsters as monstrous is demonizing marginalized people. So we're going to make monsters friendly and cozy as a way to be kinder to marginalized people. But my issue with that is that reading a story about a friendly Wendigo probably isn't going to make you less racist. Yeah. If you're racist. <laughs> so the other thing that I think about, and, and I think that this is also something that has been uh, adopted very much, I think in sort of like queer circles regarding yeah. the othering of queerness. And I totally get that. Fine with that. That is not an issue. However, I do think that this is simply the new version of we're going to include a bunch of marginalized people, but they're going to be aliens and or robots. Yeah. And I think that the, the problem that I see with this is something, uh, I, this isn't original. This, I, I remember reading something that Silvio Moreno Garcia said that, uh, that at the end of the day, you can present this terrible situation, you know, humanize this alien or robot to make them empathetic and, and they can suffer these oppressions. But at the end of the day, the people put down the story or the book or whatever, and they, they go, wow, sucks to be a robot. And they don't make the connection mm-hmm. because you've, you've just eliminated the marginalized person. The marginalized person has become a metaphor within the story rather than becoming an actual person and character within the story. Right. And also a lot of the times these stories don't handle marginalized human characters very well either i mean this is a video game but detroit become human is really not great about gender or race at all i mean quantic (laughs) dreams got into a ton of problems with uh, accusations of sexual harassment and even within the games the way they portray people of color is pretty stereotypical the the portrayal of women is not great david cage is kind of a creep or, or or Twilight, the Twilight series portrays indigenous people as literally animals. They're primitive right, well, beast men frolicking in the rain. Like, uh, okay. Adding a, like a, a wrinkle to an already marginalized group where they, oh, if, if they get too excited, they can't control themselves and turn into a gigantic raging werewolf. And you're like, I mean, granted, I think that this, I would not, I would probably not consider Stephanie Myers particularly woke in the the right as they say right. So she's a I Mormon. Think, so right, right. Uh, even if she was trying, if she was meaning well, she's got a lot of baggage that comes with the her background that sort of she didn't handle that very well. Even if she meant well, it's not good. Yeah. Um, I do want to point out that I don't think that she was trying to go for like a... She, she was trying to emp- uh, make the, the vampires less threatening, in part because it's like YA and... Right. I don't know. And she, she had issues with uh, whatever her issues were exactly. I do think that it was interesting that she does make the leap that that sort of continues on from Anne Rice's depiction of okay. vampires where where the the vampiric act of drinking blood becomes sort of like sex, food and every every pleasurable thing that you would experience as a human is just flattened into feeding. So you do feel like this almost sublime pleasure when you're feeding. So she does make that but then she goes like nope poke those fangs down gotta get those gotta gotta get those tooth boners down yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. So, so we've got that. We've got the monster as marginalized person. There's also the monster as trauma, monster as trauma victim, monster as a symbol of trauma or something like that. And I, I would like to point out that a few things. First is that a monster can be sympathetic or pitiable because of its traumatic past and still also be incredibly dangerous and scary and, and bad. Like, I don't know, a lot of murderers were probably abused as kids. That that doesn't mean that their murder is sort of soft or okay. Yeah, exactly. Like, again, to, to the point where you could make someone, even a, a regular human being, who is dangerous, empathetic, but they're still dangerous in a certain way. It, it's hard to sort of thread that needle sometimes, but it can be done. I think that you can present like, okay, you don't have to have everything be this black and white morality where, yeah, traumatized person, always good. Because sometimes people that have trauma, like, uh, isn't that the whole point of not a speculative or, or science fiction fantasy work, but isn't that the whole point of Carmen Maria Machado's memoir in the dream house? Mm. That just because you're marginalized doesn't make you, like, immune or special in, in that you can never abuse anybody. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. It's just such a strange thing. It, it it almost feels like the contrarianism that you get when you want to you immediately take an opposite position to what whatever the whatever the the your opponents say. Mm. You're like, uh, uh-uh. uh, they're good actually. Another frustration for me with that is that it it feels like it softens how bad trauma and mental illness can be, and and I understand why some people might. F- feel it is necessary to portray this in a way that's safe and manageable and good, like, here's a therapy story, but I kind of find, at least in, in, in fiction, I find it more cathartic to just let it be completely huge and horrible, because that is how it feels sometimes, mm-hmm. and just let me sit with it, let me, let me feel this for a little while, I can put the book down or, or leave the theater and then go about my life managing my issues and and trying to be good, but let me just vicariously let it all hang out for a little while in art. I think that that's sort of scratches it up from another angle, right? Pokes it pokes this issue from another angle here, right? I have seen people talk about like, well, you shouldn't try to traumatize your readers. And, and granted, I'm not within reason, obviously, you can you can like to your point Raquel the the element of fiction or art in general is sort of a, cont- a self-contained area a safe space if you will right where you can engage with traumatic things um in a safer environment you're not in the world you're actually you're using sort of the escapism in a different way to then engage with a certain trauma or a certain traumatic event uh, it doesn't even have to be your traumatic event but there's su- i feel like there's such a shrinking away from dealing like doing anything that would require a content warning because that could traumatize your readers and alienate them from from your work it, it completely defangs the entire project right it, it feels like you can't really engage with things like traumatic events in the way that they feel because you're you're busy thinking about well what is my reader going to you know i i really hope that this doesn't trigger somebody 
my frustration with that line of thinking is that at the point when I'm writing, and I, I've said this before, so it's not particularly original for me, but at the point when I'm sitting down and writing, I am not thinking about the reader at all, period. That, that happens perhaps later, and even then, uh, it's very distant. I need to figure out how this story works and what exactly I'm trying to say and what angle I'm trying to use within that fiction to work something out. Because the funny thing is, writers also generally write to work certain things out as well. So it, it just seems to me sort of not helpful if you're, engage, if you're trying to do things in that manner to then try to cosify your traumatic, whatever your trauma is that you're trying to engage with in the fiction. Mm, yeah, yeah. So let's carry on and talk about some monsters who get a little bit defanged. Why don't we start with just vampires? We'll start with vampires, because they're, they're so popular. They're always popular, and they're not really scary <laughs> anymore. They're not scary anymore. My vampires don't drink blood. Fuck you. <laughs> if your vampires don't drink blood, fuck you. That's all. Except the one acceptable version of this that I will tolerate is the energy vampire from what we do in the shadows. That's pretty fucking good. That's pretty good. <laughs> I like that guy. Just the worst fucking coworker you've ever had who just makes you want to kill yourself whenever he talks to you. Like, that was pretty fucking good. I really, really <laughs> like that. But everything else, I, I do not like. Oh, I'm a vampire, but I don't drink blood. Fuck you. Fuck yeah. you. Fuck you. It's weak. That's weak bullshit. I find some way that they need blood. I I don't care. I don't care how you portray it. I know there's the the Anne Rice portrayal of it of of this is the most pleasurable thing. Andy Warhol had a kind of an interesting portrayal of it where it's not a I don't even know if this is really Andy Warhol's movie. His name was attached to it. It wasn't a great movie, but the portrayal of Dracula is as an aristocratic junkie. Like, he's just a, he's a pathetic junkie. He is mm -hmm. a blood addict. Not, just really, really pathetic and scrabbling for it. Not, like, noble or beautiful or anything. He's just sort of a sad junkie who's lost everything to pursue this addiction. Which, uh, I like uh, that interpretation. That's a pretty cool interpretation. It's, it's an interesting angle. Uh, he's, a, he's a sad... Instead of just a sad sack, he's a sad blood sack. Yeah, he's just like a piece of shit rich guy who's blown all his money on heroin or something, and <laughs> and he's just running out, and it's just like, oh, oh, fuck, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Speaking of the queen herself, for all her flaws, uh, that was one of the things that was most enjoyable about reading, like Interview with the Vampire, was just like. Fuck you, Louie. Just fucking drink, <laughs> drink some human blood, you motherfucker. Because the the thing is that that for for all her flaws, and and I'm sure that she she had many. I'm sure there's plenty that I'm that I have blind spots too. But but at the same time, like the fact that she made Louie this fucking loser, just like sad sack, sorry for himself all the time, just sucking the blood off of rats. Could you imagine he actually has the talent to call animals to him and he just calls rats over and drinks each one like a, a watered down Capri <laughs> Sun. And and the thing is that she was she was very clever in that that continued his continued abnegation of the hunger that he felt 
was something that actually put all of them in danger. Because when he finally lets, like, he finally gives in to the craving, or he can't hold it back anymore, he just becomes like a fucking animal. He just, like, tears through a bunch of people, and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> like when people Dude. who are trying to do diets finally eat a pancake. Yep, yep. They just, just go, go fucking go on a crazy. Binge. Go on a binge, yeah. Go absolutely. on a crazy-ass binge. I it, I just found that really fascinating because it's it's one of these points of contention where in the early parts of that book Lestat just like mocks him mercilessly, mm-hmm. just like, "Oh, Louis, what are you doing? <laughs> Come on!" Now, now I know I've seen some discourse. People were a little complainy that Anne Rice portrayed Louis as a slave owner in in the books. I believe that. And there is this trope of the Confederate vampire, and I've seen a lot of people say, why do they love Confederate vampires? Why are there so many Confederate vampires? Well, I mean, vampirism is a parasitic relationship in which a person ex- violently exploits another a, a human being in order to benefit and strengthen himself. Mm-hmm. That is very much in line with in evil like slavery it just seems kind of weird to me like yeah it's okay to be a parasitic murderer but not a racist one like what what look look why I would draw he the, not be look I, I i can accept vampires uh but i draw the line at slave owners okay i find i always found that to be a real head scratcher because he's like did you did you not read any history this is happening like in the 17th century what are you not in the, it's the 18th century i believe it's like 17 something and i'm sitting there going like yeah, slavery wasn't abolished then. I'm sorry, dude. He lives in New Orleans, which was also a slave state. So this I'm is sorry. a rich guy who kills people to get an erection. He's he's gonna do this. He's. We're not saying that this is cool or good, but if you're perfectly fine with murdering people and and treating people who are less powerful than yourself as expendable, then yeah, you're gonna be okay with this. You're you're not a good person. I'm sorry. Your parasitic blood drinking monster is not nice. He, yeah, he's you know, going to be kind of bad. Tur- turns out that uh, the ethics of coercing someone to give you their blood directly into your mouth with your teeth pretty pretty uh, pretty shaky. Pretty yeah, shaky pretty ethics. Nice. I mean, Karl Marx openly compared capitalism to vampirism. I think what he said was, "Capital is dead labor." Mm-hmm. which vampire-like survives by feeding on the living. Yes, exactly right. And that's, I believe, is one of the lines that the late Mark Fisher also used to draw a line and, and name a, an essay, you know, Exiting the Vampire Castle. So, so, yeah, it's such an interesting thing. And, and granted, we're talking about, like, the post-Bram Stoker Dracula vampires. Yeah. Uh, just, just to be clear here, because there are apparently... All sorts of other vampires, even so within, many. like, yeah, even and we're really Romania. focusing on Western kinds too. I, I do not know enough about the Southeast Asian hopping Buddhist vampire things enough to, the- to really get in. Go, I do not know enough about those to comp- comment on them at all. Or, or the one, or the ones that I forget the name. I, I, I don't want to butcher the name, so I'll just say the ones that are basically like a, a head with entrails. Yeah, and they have to sort of sick. Like, that's that's, that's cool. awesome. It's that's so cool. cool. That's cool. That's metal. It's like a vampire beholder just fly floating around and grabbing you with its entrails. Like how cool is that? Yeah. Um and, and using vinegar to shrink their entrails back down so I can fit into this little plug itself back into their body. It's so great. Yeah. It's such a great detail. <laughs> 
I'm I'm a head on a body. Look at me. Um, so so yeah, uh, it's it's so weird to me because he also I, I did want to point out that I believe Alex Woodrow from over in Tenebris Press has mentioned that she lives in Romania and says that like there's easily count the amount of towns there are in Romania and that's as many different customs regarding vampires there there might be or, or the living dead so yeah, yeah it, it's just very it's very like Bram Stoker just took and did a mashup of a bunch of stuff including some of some witchcraft some werewolfism because the count has at one yeah. point hairy palms um <laughs> um, but also, um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> 12, 12 year old me surfaced there for a second. Um, but, but so yeah, there, there's a bunch of different customs and, and if you go far enough back, it's funny that vampires and zombies were almost indistinguishable from each other, which is very strange to our modern, to a modern audience who is used to the mainstreamization of both. Right. Yeah. Uh, Whereas I think that zombies are just slowly decaying bodies that just shamble around. They're, mm -hmm. they're just either nonverbal, almost nonverbal, or incoherently verbal uh, in most most cases. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And vampires are very aristocratic. Zombies are a lot more, I don't know, proletarian. Which is why I, I find it kind of interesting and a little annoying that vampires kind of get the, oh, we're just a misunderstood minority treatment while zombies are always just expendable and bad they're just gross and bad and gross i feel like that kind of says something about our attitude about social class like well i i i've also one of the things that for me specifically i've always had an issue with zombie stories specifically is mainly because it's it's a, a reverse invasion story that basically poses zombies as an externalized threat that can then overpower, quote, civilization, right? Oh, in World War Z, it's very, very overt. Zombies are the Palestinians. Yes, I mean... And but, Israel but is doomed by allowing too many of them in. Like, yes. Oh, wow, uh, okay. Let, let's, oh. Not forget, let's not forget that Max Brooks works for, like... Uh, I, I forget exactly the think tank he, he works with, but it, it, it's a murder ink you know war crimes inc think tank i'm sure and yeah absolutely i remember reading the book and and as the 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 further in i got while there were parts that were interesting the the more i started getting like and granted this is when it came out way back when so it, mm. i wasn't even i wasn't even this is borderline woke period for carlo so i was <laughs> going like what is it about this that is just setting off alarm bells in my head i was yeah. just like uh, i'm not interested in this anymore yeah. it's interesting to contrast that with george romero's dawn of the dead night of the living dead etc movies in which this the zombies aren't necessarily an inferior it's it's really they're us and as the movies went along, they were kind of making zombies more sympathetic. Like, mm -hmm. Day of the Dead, there's Bud the zombie, who you actually kind of feel bad for Bud. Bud is a little more likable than the U.S. military guy. <laughs> Colonel, what's his fit? Colonel Rhodes, I think it is. Like, you're feeling for Bud. Mm. You really like Bud more than you like those military guys. But Bud doesn't know any better. He's just a zombie. It's not his fault. And, and Land of the Dead, there's a bit where they're kind of like, almost respect them. 
as just mm-hmm. this is just another way of life. I think John Leguizamo plays this sort of zombie or sort of a cop for zombies and he gets bitten at one point and the protocol is to kill yourself and he finally says you know what no i'm not gonna do it i want to know how the other half lives fuck it let's do this <laughs> amazing i'm uh, in it I'm, I'm doing it so i i do want to point out that this is when you said that it, it reminded me of when i read the 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 former book club uh book i am legend this is a big point towards the end of the book where uh, finally, shit, I forgot the name of the, the protagonist's name. But Neville, he, I think it was. You're, that's right, that's right. He has the neighbor that keeps on, I'm going to get you, Neville. Yeah. Um, because as, as he's been basically going out during the day and just murking as many of these uh, zombie slash vampires he can find. Uh, Kidnapping their women, bringing them back to his lair and doing unspeakable things to their bodies, too. That too, yeah. Eventually, he sees one of their envoys, and she's just walking around in the day, and she invites him, and they capture him, and he realizes, yeah, they, they tell him that this is, they're the new society, right? And that he, in fact, is not uh, human, you know, like, they don't view him as human, because yeah. he's been busy trying to kill everyone, and they're the new society, Granted, while I was reading that, I was thinking to myself, so did Matheson live through, like, the Summer of Love? or Like, is this some sort of... It's hard not hippies, to see right? that in there. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's a little bit of a hint of that in there. It, it is interesting because at the, at the very last moment, he has the realization that he is the monster that he thought the vampires were. He's simply become their their legendary monster, and that's yeah. you know that's where the the title. Spoilers for a a very old book. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this is where the title comes from, man. I, I, when I also let me just say, slight detour. When I heard the ending of uh, the Will the Smith, Will Smith version, one, I'm so fucking angry. I'm so mad. How dare they? Speaking speaking of defanging, <laughs> this is this is one where it's like no, he was trying to do good, and you're like mm. <laughs> that that a book written I think in the 1960s was still too subversive for Hollywood. <laughs> really, well, you know, they, they wanted to make it nice. A trash pulp novel. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the a lot of the adaptations of it can't let go of the idea that. Neville is not a hero. They cannot let go of the fact that, like, no, this guy sucks, actually. He's a piece this, of shit. This, guy, this guy's like fucking the Mengala of vampires. What he's are you kidnapping about? women. Yes. He's kidnapping women and experimenting on them. That's bad, dude. That's not cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super bad. At the end of the book, they need to have, like, the vampire Nuremberg trials on him or some shit. Yeah, they straight up do. They they subject yep. him to a trial, and he is executed. He's not hunted down. He is executed because they are a civilized people now mm-hmm. in, in their own way. Yes, exactly. I think that that's, that speaks to something that, that can be scary, right? The fact that the culture could turn on you, and then suddenly you're the monster. yeah. Is is really something that that can give you pause, and and it it reminds me of something that the late Gadfly and general all around asshole Harlan Ellison <laughs> said, which is he's he's not wrong. He said that basically he he wanted to make sure that that the next the next generation would view their elders as monsters, and that's more or less what the book is about, right? It's like what you accepted is just 
unacceptable to us. And that, that can be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So a little bit about Zombies 2. You've brought this up in conversations before, but it's kind of interesting how we've gotten far away from the original idea or the an earlier idea of the zombie as an undead slave. Uh, mm-hmm. The idea of zombieism coming from, I think, Haiti. This is this is a myth or a monster that comes from colonized, enslaved people in the Caribbean. And what could be scarier to an exploited population than the idea that even being dead will not free you from exploitation? Even if you're fucking dead, they will still make you harvest sugar. Mm-hmm. Like, God, that's that's terrible. Yeah, like a small portion of yourself still in that body, just shambling around, still doing... There's no rest. There's no escape. Could you imagine the horror of the Arawaks or the Tainos who, like the Taino women who dashed their, their poor children's heads against rocks to avoid the conquistadors getting their hands on them and watching them be risen, like watching in horror as their children are risen from the dead to go do what they, they, wa- they wanted to do to them oh, anyway? man. That'd oh, be horrible. Man. Horrible. That would just be the fucking worst shit. It also speaks to what the history actually was and just unvarnished. You're using actually, it's one of these things where the, if that is the, the absolute genesis of that, at least in as we know it now, it, it certainly speaks to a, a real fear that black people in, in the Americas really fucking had. And it was a fear that was based off of an actual real world fear of God, please let me f- be free, at least in death. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it's horrific. And I think it's kind of sad or a little frustrating how we've forgotten that side of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, I think it, it's hard to talk about because I don't think that as a state, as a society, as a culture, I don't think the U.S. has ever really, really grappled with that in a way that no. could th- could threaten to shake the, the status quo, you know. It's very difficult. So then it becomes very difficult to really get at it in fiction in a way that will be palatable to people out there readers who don't want to look at that stuff yeah i mean we've still kind of done that a little bit there there's that famous case of henrietta lux the woman who will mm-hmm. never die mm-hmm. who she was a woman who a black woman who died i think of ovarian cancer or uterine cancer mm-hmm. some of her cells were taken and these cells are still used in experiments and, and in scientific studies they're they were called like gila cells for mm-hmm. short because they're unusually hardy they reproduce themselves they're, unusually well and because they, of this, yeah, she's called the woman who will never die because there's still living tissue of hers going around but like she she did not consent to this her family didn't consent to this mm-hmm. and weren't i believe they weren't even paid for this nope and she had a religious faith a religious belief that your spirit can't really rest until all of you is laid to rest Mm. So she's not; her spirit's never gonna be able to get to rest. And the, and that's like the, a zombie kind of shit. It's fucked yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. That that was that was conducted. Actually, I believe initially the Gila cells were first used in Johns Hopkins in some of the earliest 
cancer research. I will point out that if I remember correctly, the specific statistics that they used in the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, uh, the cells that have been used of hers in medical research, if you put them end to end, these tiny microscopic, you can't even see them, if you put them end to end, they would leave the surface of the earth, circle the moon, and come back. What the fuck? That is how many cells of Henrietta Lacks have been used over time. It is wild. And like you said, part of that book was sort of pointing out and shedding light on the fact that while all this research that has benefited all of us to a certain degree or another and and may fill the pockets of many, many companies doing medical procedures and stuff like that, her family was just living in abject poverty, I believe, in West Baltimore. Yeah. So, you know, is that is that just? I, I, I don't think so. I don't know how to fix that either, but also it's like, it's just an injustice that it can never really be redressed. I mean, at this point, I believe most of her immediate family has, has died died of natural causes or of un- or, or not so natural causes you know it's bad yeah yeah all right okay calm down harley i know he's <laughs> outraged he's outraged he's furious that's that's right so harley let that woman rest yes that's absolutely right. okay so let's move on from vampires and zombies to the succubus the problem with the wholesome succubus and this has been this isn't anywhere near as widespread as the defanged vampires or the or the zombies but most portrayals of the succubus in pop culture is really really watered down a lot of portrayals first of all are just oh it's it's like a it's like a sexy lady it's like a sexy devil lady and that's it which no mm-hmm. it's not it, it, it's not a generic hot girl with, like, wings. It's more of a a Night Terror's rapist thing. Mm-hmm. It, she's not nice. She's not your friend. Portrayals she, uh, of succubi in, in older culture tend to be a lot more grotesque and frightening. The, uh, often they were portrayed as very old women. Yeah. I, I know it's not... It's very insensitive, but very hag-like, right? Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's not. This is not from a politically correct era. The society hadn't invented the MILF yet. We didn't know about them. <laughs> so it was just like a gross, kind of horrible woman who, who sperm jacks you when you're trying to sleep. And so yeah, obviously, <laughs> obviously this is portraying some fears of, of female sexuality, but that is the source of the... That is kind of what the monster is. And the generic portrayal is like, look, pretty hot girl with wings is kind of kind of weak, and it it kind of suggests this idea that women cannot be predatorial sexually, mm. and that men cannot be victims, which is very like, it's that's not actually a progressive idea at all. The idea that women can't be predators, men can't be victims. It's very it's very turfy. So there's the generic sort of look at this hot girl version of the succubus. There's also the there have been some recent fantasy stories with with chaste, wholesome, almost virginal succubi thinking, oh, I guess it's feminist because we're subverting the sphere of female sexuality. But again, it, it's I think it's portraying this idea of female sexuality as 
inherently passive, inherently an object to be consumed, mm-hmm. I'll notice there's not a, I, I have not seen any wholesome male incubi with any of this. Yes. There's no, ah, look at this generic incubus. It's, it's like a generic hot demon. Or, ah, here's this nice incubus who's saving himself for marriage or something. We don't really get that because I think there's this idea, this maybe it's a rather Victorian, that female sexuality is inherently passive and, and objectified. Male sexuality is inherently active and predatory, which is not... It's not actually a feminist idea. It's kind of a crummy idea that hurts sexual assault victims of all genders. It hurts people who are victimized by female perpetrators, which does happen to children, especially to children, more often than you'd think. Like, yeah, obviously, I think men are more often predatory, but it's not only men. And to me, it ends up reinforcing these reactionary gender attitudes that lead to ideas like women have to cover up to avoid tempting men into, you know, doing Mm. bad things. Well, yeah, those ankles, they, they, yeah, I can't control myself around their bare ankles, Raquel. I I also think that the, speaking of, where's, where's my incubus gang, bro? Where, where, where the incubi? Yeah, incubi rock. (laughs) Do do you think that that's a saying in hell? (laughs) But yeah, like, like, it, it, and it's so, it's such a strange, um, it, it, the lore behind it is just so bizarre. It's um, super weird. Do you want to, do you want to go into detail? What is a succubus? What is an incubus? So, so, a uh, succubus is basically a, 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 I guess they do believe in the gender binary in hell. That does seem to track. Except um, for Baphomet. I guess. <laughs> Baphomet is non-binary. Good for them. Good for them. Good for uh, them. Well, I, I guess also uh, Beelzebub, who is definitely a, a them them. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but yeah. So uh, so the the succubus and the incubus are supposed to be like male female versions. I, I should say, respectively, female male. Succubus is female. Incubus is male. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, what happens is that they will, uh, like you said, Raquel. Generally, it's been attributed to night terrors. Um, they will wait until someone's asleep, and then uh, basically, yeah, like coerce the sleeper into uh, either having sex with them or just simply sitting on them. Which also, you know, I guess maybe maybe if you're Mormon, you just soak. Yeah, you just soak. <laughs> you, you have a couple of other succubi uh, show, show up so that they move the yeah, bed. Yeah, they jump on the bed so that stuff happens. Uh, but it's not your fault. But then the, this is where it gets very strange. Because it's not just general human sex that's happening here. The succubus will then take the well, sperm jack, hold it inside... And then I forget they have to transfer it to an incubus, and then the incubus reinserts it, and that's how they have weird half demon babies. Right. When I was reading up on that, I was like, "Holy shit! This sounds like I'm not sure if it's all dragonflies, but I do know that I read that dragonfly females have a a way to sort of a holding area for the <laughs> for the sperm." And when they, they've they chosen their ideal mate, they will make sure they will scrape out, they have a little thing, I guess some sort of um, some organ or uh, appendage or something that scrapes out the unwanted sperm, dumps it, and takes in the other, the, the wanted sperm. Good for uh, her. 
Indeed. This is girl boss. Girl, girl boss, yeah. This is Gaslight like gatekeep. They, they they figured this out 650 million years ago. Good you know? for her. But yeah, it, it's very strange in the in that it's just so convoluted. But it also shows you just how the specifically, I guess the whoever the the people were thinking about this were actually thinking about how demons would reproduce, and it's just so weird and just right. inhuman. You're like, okay, yeah, that's that's strange. Yeah. Shoot a load up into the sky. Where it lands, no one knows why. Yeah, it, it's it's strange and fascinating. Yeah, obviously it has some anxieties about sexuality and about about womanhood. But I mean, isn't that kind of the point? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's kind of the point. So, so and, are there are there any dudes rock or or, or women rock uh, succubi? Yeah, there. I have the one portrayal of a celibate succubus that I've actually seen that I really legitimately liked. And this is so embarrassing because it's not in fiction. It's in a fucking video game. Planescape Torment. It was this uh, game that came out in, like, I think 1999. It's very... Disco Elysium is kind of an ode to it. But there's this character, a major character, who's a succubus who, who gave up that life... To, to study the life of the mind and a very virtuous life. But there's a question asked as to whether is this a genuine change of heart or is this character just playing on the fact that patriarchal societies fetishize female purity and this is just another way to kind of ensnare and control men? It raises the question and it never really answers the question, which I really, really, really do appreciate. <laughs> the horny energies are off the charts. She's harvesting it. Exactly. <laughs> well, um, it's kind of like those early 2000s, you know, Jessica Simpson and, and, and Britney Spears, where it's the I'm not that innocent mm-hmm. kind of virginal sex pot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Kind of that. I, I think about sex a lot. That's about as far as they would go. But yeah, like uh, straight edge succubus. That is that is a good one. <laughs> I gotta admit. Yeah, like uh, it, it's really a really clever way of doing it. And I, I'm sorry, but I'm sad to say, but that video game from what like 24 years ago, is the best example of it that I've seen. And you can't do better than that. You can't can't do better than a video game. You got to write better than a fucking video game. <laughs> it's a well-written video game, but it is a video game. I have not plumbed the depths of the... Uh, what is it? Is it paranormal romance? I'm sure oh, that there's God. plenty of plenty of yeah. portrayals there, but, but that is just not, my, not really my thing. I have not read widely in that area. Please forgive me if you have read, I don't know, like The Succubus That Pounded Me in the Butt. Uh, yeah. An ode to Chuck Tingle. I don't know. Whatever. I mean, at least that would make sense to me and be more consistent with the tradition. What I'm talking about is succubus is just kind of generic pretty girl. Like that That's boring. That's so weak. That's so yeah. weak. You have no imagination. You're not gross enough. Mm-hmm. You need to be grosser. I'm sorry. Actually, now that I think about it, that upcoming Nick Cage movie sounds very much along the lines of an incubus type of thing right what is it dream dream project or something like that anyway the 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 point being that he just starts showing up in people's dreams 
and it, he doesn't know why. Uh, it, it just sounds it sounds like a, a fascinating concept. I don't know if they'll pull it off, but that's another mm. story. Yeah, there, there's there's plenty to go with there. And generally, speaking of general demonic creatures, creatures that just shake their fist at you and, oh, you got me. That's not really, I don't know. There's so many different types of weird demons and devils that, uh, yeah. like, one of the reasons that Hereditary was so good was part of the fact, partly because it delved into, like, Oh, I've never heard of this name before. Who is Pyman? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so so uh, what else? What what other supernatural creatures have we? Oh, we got to talk about fairies. We got to. Oh hell gotta, yeah! I'm so um, the way Americans write fairies is just appalling. Americans suck at writing fairies. Traditional fairies are creepy, chaotic, impulsive. They'll steal your baby. They'll steal <laughs> your name. They'll steal shit. They'll they'll fuck you up. They'll enslave you. I mean, they're nature spirits. I feel like it says something about our attitude toward nature when the assumption is that this this exists to serve me like a Starbucks barista. I think it's partly... Uh, partly slow- because of Disney. Well, yeah, yeah. Disney is definitely accelerated that. But, but I think that there was something happening before then where some of the... Even the, the Grimm's fairy tales have been sl- slowly been sort of sand... The really gross and gnarly p- yeah. bits of it have been sort of sanded away so that they, they're much more... Even the narratives that won't disturb the humors, if you will, right? So you, you can't tell your child at bedtime the juniper tree story and expect them to, to just go to bed. You know, that's sort of a disturbing mm-hmm. story. I think that there is something to be said. There's these classifications that also get flattened. Like back in the day, it was, they were def- usually divided, I, I think... I don't know if it's, it, pre, it predates uh, Shakespeare because he's using it in A Midsummer Night's Dream. But like the Seely and Unseely courts were sort of like these different factions of fairydom. Mm. And granted, even then, it's, it's already being flattened into like it's, it's a giant kingdom and it's, it has some sort of order to it now. <laughs> imagine, imagine if it's just a bunch of everyone just doing their own thing and maybe... They, they will respond to, to a fairy that's more powerful than them. But do, do fairies have actual monarchs and nobility? I don't know. I would hope not. Mm-hmm. Even in Midsummer Night's Dream, Titania and Oberon are both figures of legend slash myth, but Shakespeare's using them very much like he would use uh, a king and queen in, in a play, right? Mm-hmm. They have a nominal control over their their subjects if you will but yeah like i would say that even most people would say even the seely fairies they'll fuck your shit up man (laughs) you'll end up like mad drunk off your ass all night wake up 20 years later thinking that you've got a pouch full of gold and whoops nope they turned into little flowers when the sun came up shit you go back to your town and nobody recognizes you. like oh yeah some some guy with a long beard oh yeah that uh, you look like rip van winkle we haven't heard of him in 25 years we thought he was dead american fairy stories are so eh, so annoying it's so i mean I, 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 i'm, I'm I, just bitter i'm i'm just I, grumpy because i don't know if will would you be comfortable if i knock on codex a little bit here i know you're still in it 
It is. Uh, it's I fine. It Whatever. Yeah. Uh, uh, just because I'm so annoyed because when I wrote my story, The Fairy Egg, and put it up on Codex which was this writing group that I am no longer a part of because it's terrible. For feedback, one of the reviewers got mad because they said, oh, this fairy, it's its not friendly. It sounds like it just, it's only interested in exploiting her to get at her baby. Like, yeah, that's what they fucking do. <laughs> Talk to an Irish person. Are you I kidding me? Have, has no one here read any Hellboy stories? He like, re- that's, he- they love human babies. It's their favorite thing. It's like currency over there, man. They're, the Hellboy comics are great for this because there's always a, there's a series of vignettes where he runs up against. There, there's one that I remember very, very clearly where he's like, hey, you know what babies like, right? And he goes to a some remote cottage where the couple thinks that their baby's been switched it's a changeling baby and just if no one knows i mean if you have actually been kidnapped by fairies and lived under an actual rock for a year and a day let me just say that uh changelings are what raquel is saying basically fairies will take children and leave a fairy in its stead with a glamour over it so that it will, a glamour being an illusion of some sort, so it looks like your kid. But then your kid becomes sort of, you start noticing that your kid starts doing uncanny shit or just knows things. It's just very creepy and a gradual thing that that can just basically creep you out. You could rip apart the marriage because who you've been sleeping with with this kid is demonic or something have you been sleeping with incubuses again god damn yeah. it so the 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 point being that hellboy gets called to this cottage the, the couple is sitting there going like oh my kid's a changeling and <laughs> his line is like you know what babies love iron horseshoes and the the kid just like gives him a look and he's like touches touches just the corner of the horseshoe to his to his heel and it just like, transforms into this little wizened horrible looking little thing he's like ah let me go let me go and you're like fuck <laughs> that's great it's <laughs> it's such a great little vignette of of exactly what you'd expect right yeah. and he's always bumping up against weird fairies that have weird powers and shit like that uh so so yeah there's shit tons of fairies out there some of them will just want to eat you. Some of them will, for instance, not exactly a fairy, but a definitely a supernatural creature. A puka will is a horse that will, as soon as you, I think it's the puka, um, as soon as you mount it, it will immediately run to a cliff and just jump into the ocean with you on it. Uh, <laughs> what a dick. <laughs> Rude. It's like, Got you exactly where I would want you, buddy, on my back. Bye. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it's just great. There, there's so many different little critters that live uh, within the margins of what we'd call fairydom, if you will, that, that do not look like those stupid cottonton fairies that uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle got scammed into believing. What a fucking dumbass. My God. <laughs> you'd, you'd think that the creator of, of Sherlock Holmes would have been a bit more judicious. Not right? even but, remotely skeptical. Who, who was his friend? Was it Houdini? Wasn't it Houdini who was his friend who was like, bro, come on. <laughs> well, dipshit. Th- don't forget that he was also involved in the Piltdown Man's hoax as well. Oh, God. And he was super into seances, too. I mean, I, I think that he that was, was also... I mean, speak- yeah. Ekman was in the air at that point in time. It was just everywhere. Yeah. Like, uh, man, you're embarrassing. 
Yeah, it's it's out of character it's or out of the character crazy. that you'd imagine, right? But yeah, like imagine uh, also, Sherlock Holmes suddenly going on a rant about chemtrails. <laughs> By the measurements of this skull, I've realized that this is truly the the Piltdown man is the original man, and he, he lived in England. <laughs> He's a good British caveman. <laughs> but anyway, I, I did want to point if we want to wrap up the the fairy talk, I did want to point out that over on Podside we are still reading Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell that captures honestly has a terrifying and utterly delightful character called the gentleman with the thistle down hair who uh is in fact just very capricious very much like what you'd expect a fairy to be like just he 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 is always chipper but then he'll be chipper about like oh yes this is we're going to reenact an ancient ritual wherein our our tribe our clan of fairies defeated our enemies and then forced their children off the edge of the castle ramparts onto the flagstones below until everyone was dead and someone says oh quite a striking image we're going to do we're going to do it in effigy this uh, tonight he's like it must be a very striking image he's like, oh yes it was much more striking the, the first time we did it though <laughs> <laughs> You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> so I want to stress here that the reason why we're we're talking about this isn't because we're being sort of canon nerds. That's not the, the original canon. We get it. Folklore evolves. Shit changes. I, my issue with a lot of this stuff is more like, it's a lot more boring to soften it. It's really kind of boring and weak, and I don't really see the point of calling something a vampire calling something a whatever if you're not going to do anything cool or weird or gross with it that that's more my issue not like you're not doing it the way you're supposed to okay i don't that's not what i'm interested in but you're making it kind of boring yeah i i think that it's the old argument about like what color is the imaginary creature so who cares but but i to a certain degree given the fact that you are working within the realm of imagination it might behoove everyone to use their own imaginations to make things a little bit more, put a new, cur- put a new, you know, wrinkle into it, or perhaps a new wrinkle based on old uh, things. Like for instance, right. if you wanted to portray one, one of the weird things about, I don't know, like Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga has a thing where if you throw seeds on the ground before her she needs she's compelled to count them Mm. she needs to count them and i mean then okay that that's really cool i mean i I think i've also heard that attributed to different types of creatures including vampires yeah yeah but then you have okay so hold on is this like an obsessive compulsive? Is this a monster that is suddenly neuroatypical? That's sort of an interesting wrinkle, you know? Yeah. You just have like a weird compulsion to do certain things. Is it a compulsion? Is it something that is innate? They have to do it because it's part Vampires of just have sensory issues. That's the whole thing about the sun. That's all. I have sensory issues. I'm sorry. I gotta drink blood. I don't like the I don't like the feeling of biting on food. Of it's course un- it's, it's tough. <laughs> Of course I can see myself in the mirror. I just look so ugly to myself. It looks so bad. I have body dysmorphia. I pretend not to see myself, okay? Yeah. Yeah, I've been there. I don't know. But but it's just... My my point here is that doing the most generic watered-down thing is not interesting. Mm -hmm. just, Just do more. So... 
Before we go, I want to talk about one last monster that's becoming a little bit more popular. Wendigos. Now, I fucking love a Wendigo. Wendigos rock. I think Wendigos are super cool. However, there's a lot of bad Wendigos Wait, in are pop we talk- culture. Are we talking about the author, Chuck Wendigo? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's the worst Wendigo. <laughs> Terrible Wendigo. He, he, he would be like the worst Wendigo, but like the sequel to The Worst Witch. <laughs> yeah. The, the, <laughs> that Wendigo, the, the myth is that if you eat too much epic bacon, you become a Chuck Wendig and you run around in the forest <laughs> making really bad posts. No. <laughs> No, but we're referring to the to the traditional indigenous creature. In a lot of pop culture, it's just a fucked up deer monster, and like that's I don't know where that's from. That's not from anything. That's not. Did um, I I, I, I have not I have not read it, and I I know that you guys just read uh, it recently for the book club. Uh, but yeah, the only uh, good Indians, only good Indians, right? Is yeah, is super that good. What? Is, it's, is that's, that a that's a different thing. That's like okay. a, a variation on, on on a spirit called the Deer Woman. Okay, cool. Which is, which is sort of a, a tempting female spirit who lures men to their doom. But no, Wendigo is a different thing. But the the big thing about Wendigo is that I, I find that the generic movie monster stuff ignores is the the cannibalism taboo. It's a huge part of. The monster, the fear that if you if you commit cannibalism, even out of desperation in the winter, you'll become this thing with an insatiable hunger that like cannot stop eating and is never mm-hmm. full and, and has to go crazy eating human beings. That's sort of more, my understanding, is what it's about, not just, look, it's a fucked up deer monster that, that attacks you. Like, oh, okay. This is something that served a really important purpose, an important cultural purpose, which was reinforcing cultural taboos and cultural attitudes. And, and the, ta- the taboo about cannibalism isn't just about what you're eating, but, more, but a lot about how you treat other people and mm-hmm. how you treat people who, who you belong to. It's like, don't eat your own, you know? Don't be greedy. Don't be selfish. Don't exploit other human beings like an animal would. That's kind of the important thing, and so many of the generic monster stories don't really get at that. Although, I I mean, I can't weigh in on the debate, is it acceptable for a non-indigenous author to write a Wendigo story? I don't know. I'm I'm not indigenous, and I'm not really planning on writing a Wendigo story. I I did like that movie, Ravenous, which was made Mm -hmm. by a white English person, which uses the Wendigo figure as a metaphor for manifest destiny and and Mm -hmm. white american culture and i think it uses it very effectively but just turning it into generic monster with antlers like that really fucking sucks ravenous is is fantastic we uh ran an episode over in podside for thanksgiving of all uh uh, i I thought it was appropriate for a holiday uh, it's a perfect thanksgiving movie it is a perfect thanksgiving movie because thanksgiving is the holiday dedicated to gluttony but yeah like i I thought that that was a although still appropriation i did think that it was effectively deployed to sort of poke in the eye of like weird imperialist the frontier needs to expand and you know weirdos i love that movie i had not seen it in ages and rewatched recently and it was great but yeah i also not not my lane really i'm not gonna really comment uh on whether 
I'm going to leave that to good indigenous authors and artists uh, to to say, uh, as I understand it, uh, there have been plenty of appeals to probably not engage with it because you're not going to use it in, in the correct ways. So you've been warned. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, uh, Harley wants to chime in as well. Yeah, Henny. So. Henny. Speaking oh, of- it's Henny. This is Henny, speaking of ravenous animals that cannot get enough food <laughs> and are just monsters who will not stop eating. Oh, you know. Yeah. Look, look, she she left her brother's food in the bowl for a full 30 seconds. And he, <laughs> he didn't go for it, so fair game. I guess my, my final thought about this was when, when I was thinking about earlier today, when I was thinking about what I wanted to think, talk about tonight on this, on this subject, was that the sort of like the, the coziness, the cozification or the comfiness of monsters would have its sort of like logical endpoint with someone having, I don't know, their, their imaginary friend be like a war criminal. And then I remembered that Jojo Rabbit exists. <laughs> and I, I, I kind of said fuck under my breath and, and went to do, go do a workout to, to blow off some steam because I was like, God damn it. <laughs> Something that this, this uh, I'd like to bring this to a close by talking about another, uh, a real life incident in which some folks tried to soften and sanitize a monster to a terrible end. I, I think a lot of kind of fuzzy writers seem to think that softening and sanitizing culture makes us better and safer. Uh, I would point to the infamous Slenderman stabbing of, I think it was the early 2010s. A couple of girls stabbed their friend because they wanted the the internet creepypasta figure the slender man to manifest and like take them away because there's sort of a subculture obsessed with slender man and part part of the myth in some internet subcultures is that i don't know it gets weird but he takes children away from bad things and takes them to the slender mansion where they can live and i guess it's pretty cool or something so here are some kids who had a very kind of cutesy, watered-down version of this imaginary internet monster. It sure as fuck didn't make them better and kinder people to have this sanitized vision of, of, a, of a creature. It, in fact, I mean, I mean, obviously they were mentally ill. This was not the sole motivating factor. But what I'm going to point to is that softening and, and sanitizing a monster really doesn't make it safer. And that... Sometimes we have these fears, or, or sometimes it's good to be afraid of something. Sometimes being afraid or disgusted by something serves a very, very valuable purpose, cu- culturally or morally or socially. Taking that away is not always a good thing. Yeah, I, I uh, to that point, I, it it always reminds me. I think uh, I, I said this before uh, ages ago that sometimes a lot of these stories have their genesis in people sitting around a campfire or whatever and the darkness outside looks is full of eyes or eyes reflected from the reflecting the light from the campfire and people are afraid of that and and they're probably correct to to stay near the fire and that's i i think that the issue isn't the fear itself it's who 
who they blame or think is responsible for that is more the the problem, which I think I've seen this recently a couple of times already, and I I understand the reasoning, and I don't. Th- I think there's missing steps to the the idea that fear. I think it it actually derives directly from fucking Yoda, where they they think that fear actually leads to hate, and you're like. Look, <laughs> there's not always being afraid to touch a hot stove does not mean that the Italians are, the, are to blame for that. You know, uh, right. I, I think it's it's a a misapprehension of the fact that, yes, uh, people can be afraid. And the issue is that that fear can be leveraged to to then, you know, say oh well these people did it but the people using that and leveraging that or or in using that to make people afraid of and hate someone else those those people are not afraid they don't give a shit about those other people <laughs> that's what it is mm. they don't even think of them as human why are they afraid of them they they can't yeah. really be afraid of them like you could be disgusted by a cockroach but you're not really afraid of a cockroach you know you don't have any yeah. compunctions about stepping on it. Uh, yeah. Yes, it can lead to some hatred, but it's there's there's some steps. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it sometimes it's good to have a healthy fear of, of something. <laughs> yes. Yes. Like sometimes it's very good and reasonable to be afraid of stuff. So, yeah. Some, don't, don't, some yeah. shit's scary. Don't, don't fuck do with t- it. Don't tap dance on the edge of a building. Don't jump out of perfectly good planes. You know that type of thing. Like I'm thinking of, I don't know if we if we're gonna sanitize every monster and make him misunderstood. Okay, the big bad wolf and Little Red Riding Hood. Well, what's that actually a symbol for? I mean, it's a warning about stranger danger. Mm-hmm. Is yep. that something we should sanitize? No, not really. No, <laughs> I mean that's uh, yeah, that's a scary. That's a, it's a lesson to girls, but unfortunately, that is a you know that that creepy guy who asks too many questions. Do not answer his questions. Keep fucking walking is a very important lesson that you do need to learn when you're a young girl. <laughs> do, do not fucking answer his questions three. Don't fucking Fuck tell him where you're going. <laughs> do not fucking tell him shit. Like, that is a very good lesson, and yeah, you kind of need a little bit of healthy fear yeah, for that, yeah. unfortunately, which sucks. It sucks that we live in that world, but what are we going to do? You try and sanitize that monster. Oh, he's misunderstood. He's actually your friend. No, the fuck he is not. <laughs> That's not a good lesson to teach people. Yes, exactly. On on the flip side of it, I think that the the other aspect of this is simply I I have a lot more respect for the stories that fully embrace the idea that if I am a monster, I can do all these things, you know? There's a recent story that came out in the dark. Is it called The Gentle Wolves? Hmm. Which is really good. And it's all about this sort of... In, in fact, it's it's totally yes. grappling with uh, queerness and self-loathing and then mm-hmm. finally giving in to the, the urge to be queer and, and act... And, put into motion the action of queer sex and all that good stuff. And at the end, he's like, yeah, uh, I'm, (laughs) it's cool to be a fucking wolf. Fuck that. If you want to have a power fantasy, then have a power fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Go for it. Yeah. But just, just own it. Just own it. 
understand yeah, take, what you actually are. Yeah, take a swing, man. Go for it. Yeah. Okay, so we've been talking for about an hour, so why don't we wind down before we go? Uh, what would you like to plug? Obviously, uh, I I am the main host with my two co-hosts, Kurt and Chris, over at Podside Picnic. As I mentioned previously in this episode, we are currently doing a read-through, which are all pre- premium episodes of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. We're having a fabulous time reading it. It is a very funny book. Think, if you've never heard of it before, think a return of English magic during Napoleon, the Napoleonic Wars era, as written by Jane Austen. It is a lot of fun. And I guess my only fiction <laughs> this year uh, is, in fact, uh, a, a retelling of the Juniper Tree combined with a historical event called La Operación in Puerto Rico called Up, Up in the Hills, She Dreams of Her Daughter Deep in the Ground. That one's published in Strange Horizons. So go check that one out. But that's it. That should be it for me. All right. Well, thank you for coming by and and for this monstrous episode. (laughs) But anyway, thanks for having me back, Raquel. And thank you for coming on, and thank you all for listening. If you like what you heard, please head to patreon.com slash write good and subscribe. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by OK Glass. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittystasis.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittystasis.com. You'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. This has been a Kitty Steezes production. Kittysneezes.com in color.